Good day. Welcome to Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. I'm your host, Rabbi Richard Address, and we thank you very much for your time and joining us on this particular podcast. If you'd like to reach us for suggestions or comments, please feel free to email me, Rabbi Address at JewishSacredAging.com. One of the issues that keeps emerging, uh, either directly in conversation in some of the workshops we do, or sort of like tangentially sneaking in on the back ends of conversations, is the current debate uh, on medical aid in dying, otherwise known as MAID, which uh, is legal in my state, the state of New Jersey, and about nine or ten other jurisdictions in North America. And we wanted to explore some of this uh, within our Jewish community to cut to that chase right away. There are still tremendous differences of opinion about whether this is sanctioned uh, halakhically, Jewishly. Um, and even the movements have created responsa, uh, sort of like taking positions for and against or neutral in certain circumstances. And if you are concerned about this, let me get this out straight away. Uh, you should really be talking to your own individual rabbi for guidance and consultation on this, because it does vary from denomination, it varies within denominations, and obviously it varies from state to state. But we want to look at this issue, and to that I'm very pleased to welcome two seekers of meeting today, uh, Dr. Robin Plumer, uh, who is a physician here in New Jersey who uh, is active in the medical aid and dying movement. So, Dr. Plumer, welcome to Secrets of Meaning. I'm very appreciative of your time. Uh, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, let's, let's cut to the heart of the matter right away as we begin to explore this. Uh, tell me what medical aid and dying is. Right. So, medical aid and dying... Um, is a it's actually a legal it's a law in New Jersey and as you mentioned in 10 other jurisdictions in the US and basically it says that for a person who is terminally ill an adult over age 18 uh with a prognosis of less than 6 months and with full mental capacity that they are permitted to uh ask a physician to write them a prescription for a medication that will shorten their suffering and there's a procedure they have to go to. It's not to go through. It's not instant. Um, I can go into that a little bit later. But basically, it's about giving people control over themselves and their death in the situation where they have very little control, because most of the time they've been treated for a terminal disease prior to seeking medical aid and dying. So, so that's kind of the definition. What are the what are the safeguards? Uh, because I know a lot of the literature especially in New Jersey when this is being uh, discussed in the legislature, uh, the slippery slope, this is a slippery slope, um, people with disabilities, uh, suppose people just feel depressed uh, in the context of this, are they going to be able to do this? Walk me through some of these uh, challenges that were raised and are still raised uh, regarding this law. So first of all, most of the states in the U.S. have pretty similar laws with small variations. Um, all of them require patients to be adult, to have terminal illness, and to have mental capacity. Um, in the United States, none of the states permit someone to seek medical aid in dying based on a mental illness. Now, that's not always true in some other countries, 
but in the U.S. it's not a qualifying diagnosis. If someone has a mental illness that is under good control, they can still seek medical aid in dying, but the prescribing doctor has to be sure that that's not the reason that they're asking for aid in dying and also be sure that that doesn't cloud their judgment in asking for it in the context of another illness. Um, one of the groups called Compassion and Choice, which gets a lot of the uh, legislative work done in the different states, they've done a lot of research um, on the disability community, and they have never shown, and it's now 20 years since Oregon started with this law, never shown that the disability uh, community has been targeted, and very few people actually with chronic disabilities even seek medical aid in dying. So I think that's kind of been debunked to a large degree. Uh, one of the other challenges mm -hmm. of this is mm -hmm. this is physician-assisted suicide. We uh, don't like that word. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> okay. I, I know. But <laughs> that is a phrase that appears in the media. Yeah. And, you know, in casual conversation around the water cooler or uh, at the diner, um, talk, me th talk me through that. It, this is what this is, it, what it is not, et cetera. Yeah. So I think the word suicide is pretty triggering and we really in the medical aid and dying community prefer to avoid that. And so again, a lot of people have looked at this and talked about the distinction between aid and dying and suicide. So to begin with, suicide primarily occurs in people who have a choice between living and dying. Okay. They don't have a terminal illness with a short prognosis. Often it's someone with either a chronic disease or possibly with a mental illness. Um, suicide is often done alone, with the person is alone without people around them that they can trust. And for that reason, it's very traumatizing to family and to, to other people. Um, and again, it's often done in the context of mental illness and often it's a very violent way that they end their lives. Now, for medical aid and dying, it's meant to be a very thoughtful, considered, and legal process. I could just jump into the process a little bit for you. Please, please, people, do. please do. Yeah. People often think it takes a very, very long time to qualify. It doesn't take a very long time, but at the very minimum, it takes 16 days. So again, the laws are pretty similar in most of the states, but in New Jersey, the, the, the patient has to make a request to the prescribing or attending physician um, and that, that's a series of questions that get asked. Do you understand your diagnosis? Do you understand that you have a less, a prognosis of less than six months? This follows a full discussion of what medical aid and dying is about. And the prescriber has to be sure that the patient understands that. They are asked several times, do you know that you can change your mind at any time until ingestion? They have to be able to self ingest the medication. And the control over when and whether they take it is entirely in the hands of the individual. The prescribing doctor has to ascertain that the patient fully understands this, that they're not being coerced by anyone else. There's a recommendation made for hospice always, which I think is a great idea, but is also part of the law. And they're also asked if they plan to notify their family members that this is the path that they want to pursue. So that's day one. That starts the clock on the process. 15 days later, the patient can make a second request, during which time the same questions are asked. Mental competency is assessed again. And on day 16, if all the other requirements are done, that's when the medication can become available. So 
it's, you know, a little more than two weeks. Now, in that two-week period, the patient has to also fill out what's called a written request, which is a New Jersey state form. They, they have to write in their diagnosis. Their, it's, it's sort of a checkoff form, but they fill in their diagnosis. Do they understand what MAID is? Have they told their family? Are they participating in hospice? And that gets witnessed by two people, only one of whom can be a family member. So that's one project that has to be done. And the second thing is a second doctor known as consulting doctor also has to see the patient and basically ask the same questions that the attending asked, again, assessing the patient for understanding and competency. So those are the pieces that have to happen. Now, on day 16, the prescription gets issued. That doesn't mean the patient gets the medicine. They don't have to. In some cases, there are people who are waiting for day 16 and they want to take it as soon as they can. But there are many people that just want to know it's available. And in that case, the prescription actually stays in the pharmacy until they're pretty close to setting a date. So some of the pitfalls are some people don't make it through the 16 days, right? Some people wait too late to talk to me. That's always really tragic. And there is a, um, a bill, I believe, in the legislature that's going to be heard in a few months to permit the doctor to ask for a waiver in cases where people might not make it through the 16 days, which I think is a great idea. And some other states have that right now. Um, there are some people who qualify and either do or don't pick up the medication, but they can never quite set the date. They're just not ready to do it. And that's fine. And I support them as an end-of-life doctor and help them with symptoms. And some people die without the medication. And then there are other people who might get the medicine, but might lose either their physical or mental capability to take it when they finally decide. So the day that they take the medication, they have to be able to look at me, say that they understand what aid in dying is, you know, affirm that that's what they want to do and be able to self-ingest the medication. So there's, all, there's quite a lot of safeguards, I think, on the process. It's, it's not, certainly not meant to be a last-minute decision, ever. Um, what, what drew you to become active in this? So I, my career was that I was an emergency doctor for 30 years. I mostly practiced in the South Jersey area. And then in 2008, I actually left and went to New Zealand. And I went for one year because I always wanted to live outside the country and see what that was like. New Zealand is an absolutely gorgeous place, and I loved living there. And I was practicing emergency medicine. And each year, I kept renewing my time in New Zealand. I ended up being there for nine years. Wow. And while I was there, I got interested in hospice and palliative care and started to work in addition to emergency medicine in hospice palliative care. And also, I did a postgraduate uh, degree at University of Auckland in hospice palliative care. Um, and then in 2017, I came back to the US to help my family because my dad was sick with Parkinson's disease. And I had always said I'd come back to help. And I have to admit that I didn't know that New Jersey was working on passing this law because I wasn't really, you know, in New Jersey or really paying very close attention to what was going on um, in the medical community while I was out of the country. So it was a little bit of a surprise to me in 2019 when I was working in hospice and the hospice I was working for gave a little seminar and they said, hey, everybody, New Jersey has medical aid in dying and this is how it works. And at the end of the seminar, they said, oh, but by the way, none of our doctors are allowed to prescribe this medicine. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And about six months later, when I left that hospice, I thought, well, 
I wonder who is prescribing this medicine. And I tried to find some doctors in New Jersey, and I couldn't even find anyone who knew anything about it or was prescribing. There were a few individuals, but not very many. So I kind of did a deep dive into the community of medical aid and dying, which there is a group called acamade.org, and it's based out of California, but a lot of it is practitioners out of uh, Washington, Oregon, California, some of the states out west where aid and dying has been uh, ensconced for a number of years. And I spoke to a lot of people and learned about how it works and some of the pitfalls and how to write the prescriptions. And I formed a little practice with a colleague of mine who is a former ER nurse. And I think for both of us, having had a lot of experience working in an emergency department and seeing sudden, tragic, you know, really traumatic deaths for families, we were ready to look at a different kind of end of life. And it's just been an amazing journey to have really the luxury to work with families in a much more quiet setting and really get to know them and then to be there for very peaceful deaths. So unlike what we both saw working in the hospital setting. So that's kind of how I got where I am. The working with the families component. Yeah. Uh, could you talk mm-hmm. to me a little bit about that? I, um, yeah. You, you, you prescribe the the prescription. People go through the sixteen days, and they use it or they don't use it. But there is that dynamic that that surrounds the patient of the family. How how much do you interact with them? A lot, and um, you know, I again, I'm coming from a hospice background. That was kind of how I came to this, and I'm sort of a hospice physician at heart. So, although the law only requires that I see the patient two times and coordinate all of the paperwork and then give them the prescription. That's not how my practice works. So pretty much from the first day, um, I'm helping with symptom management, working a lot with the families. And you know, that's the hospice model is that the patient is not the only person being treated, that it's a family model. So my partner and I get to know our patients and their families very well. I would say that in many occasions, we're speaking to them every day or every other day, kind of keeping our finger on the pulse of how things are going. We sometimes have to be advising about if we think they're getting worse or getting closer to needing to make a decision, but we never make that decision for them. It's always up to them. And we support them no matter what they choose. Now, the other part of the law is it doesn't say that any medical attendant has to be present on the day that somebody takes aid and diet. But I think that that is terrifying. (laughs) And again, as an emergency doctor, I think about all the potential things that could go wrong. And I would, I wouldn't even want my family to be in that situation. So we basically are present at every single death. One or both of us are there and we are there to mix the medicine, present it to the patient. Of course, they have to self ingest. So we monitor that and we stay with the family until they die, which could be sometimes a long time. So we're very, very involved. When you say mix the medicine, is this a liquid or an injection or? So it cannot be an injection. Again, it's, this has got to be administered through the GI tract. Okay. So either drinking it or some other portal into the GI tract, it comes as a compounded powder. It's five different medications made by certain compounding pharmacies, only a few in the state of New Jersey that will even make it up. And on the day that the person plans to take it, it gets mixed with about three ounces of usually apple juice, cranberry juice, something like that. Um, And then it's presented to the patient. 
and they need to drink it in under two minutes, which is generally not really that fast if you think of it for about a half a cup. Although I do have to say that it does not taste very good. And we have a couple of little tricks about how we try to help people with that. We basically, we preload them with some sweet Italian ice. And as they're drinking, they sometimes will pause and they'll get another mouthful or two of Italian ice and they end with the Italian ice too. Um, and then once they're finished drinking it, generally most people fall asleep within five to 10 minutes. They just gently fall asleep. 80% of people die within two hours. It's not instantaneous, right? They go into a, a light sleep, then they go into a deep sleep, and then it varies with the person and their condition, you know, how they do. Some about, as I said, 80% die in two hours. Some people go a little longer. I think currently it's 95% die by five hours. But wow. that period of time is a really interesting and special time for the family because it gives them a little bit of time to really accept that this person is going to die. And sometimes when people die very quickly, it's, it's too sudden. You know, they don't have a chance to kind of absorb it and sit with it. Whereas when it's more like a two hour, three hour period of time and they're, they're seeing that the person that they love is gently sleeping, not in pain. Often people who have been in pain, you see their face relax, you see their breathing relax and family kind of open up a little bit and they can talk about the person. And it's really, it's really kind of a special and sacred time in many ways. The issue of quality of life, I'm sure it comes up in a lot of the conversations. Yes. Um, Will you talk to me a little bit about how you work through that with a very, um, and I'm, I would imagine that it varies from patient to patient. Um, so could you just unpack that in your practice a little bit? Right. So first of all, I generally am working with hospice on this. Okay. We kind of work parallel to each other. And hospice, of course, provides, you know, social work and nursing and, and a whole structure. So a lot of times they will be working along with, with me and with the patient on that. One of the things I want to say is that you would think that the main reason people choose aid in dying is because pain is terrible and they don't want to be in pain. But that's not generally the reason because hospice is very good at pain management. And it does come down to a bigger question of, question of quality of life. And it also comes down to people, they use the term death with dignity, although I don't think that's exclusive to aid in dying. But the personality type of the kind of person who chooses aid in dying is generally someone who's fiercely independent, wants to be in control, and is very resolute about their decisions. So that's, that's the kind of person that chooses aid in dying. And these are people who are usually very sensitive to the issue about quality of life. You know, I'll hear people say, I can't do anything. I feel like I'm a, a stick of furniture. I can't participate. I hate people changing my diapers. You know, those kinds of issues really come into play. So, um, you know, people do ask me, how do I make the decision? I can only offer them what other people tell me because it's a very personal decision. A lot of times it comes down to the individual's balance about how much pain are you having every day and pain in a, not just a physical sense, but, you know, emotional sense and how much can I participate, um, versus how much, how much pleasure. And it's always an independent, an independent decision for that. It's a hard, it's a really hard decision. There are um, members of various religious communities who would argue that 
this is playing God and uh, human beings do not have the right to do that, that this really belongs in a level of reality that's sacred or divine or whatever. How, how do you begin to uh, walk that walk? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So we've had people from all religions. I mean, lots of the different Christian denominations, lots of Jewish people. We've had Hindu. We've had, I think, a couple of others. Um, I don't know if I've had any Muslim people. But so fortunately, so my background's Jewish and my partner, her background's Catholic. And that's been really helpful because she can speak a lot more clearly to the to people of, of Christian background. And in, when individuals are polled, and Compassionate Choices has done a lot of a lot of polls about this, individuals from every religion, for the most part, are in favor of people having the choice for aid and dying. Obviously, not every religion will say that that's okay, but the individual people often do want it. Um, so, my partner Elizabeth says that even in the Christian religion, that you know the Pope doesn't want people to suffer. That you don't really get any extra credit for suffering, although individual people might disagree with that. Um, I find that for the most part, people of Jewish background seem to have a much easier time with making an individual decision. I have had just a few people with Orthodox background who have spoken to their own individual rabbis. And sometimes they're told, well, Judaism doesn't really support this, but if it was me, I'd do what you're doing. <laughs> right? So I think that individualism is kind of kind of prized. Um, but look, it does, it does play in for a lot of people. We also have, again, because I work with hospice, um, hospices always have chaplains. Chaplains right. are meant to be non-denominational. I did have one upsetting um, incident where a patient went on hospice. She was not particularly religious. When I asked her if she was spiritual, she surprised her family by saying yes. And she asked to have the chaplain come. Well, the chaplain happened to be a priest, and he told her she was going to go to hell if she did this. Oh, fortunately, wow. yeah, fortunately, she ha was a very strong person on her own, and she said, "Get out of my house," <laughs> and um, and she still chose aid and dying. So, you know, one would hope that hospice chaplains would be pretty um, neutral about that and just try to support people spiritually. But I've learned to be a little bit careful about that. Have you run across, um, let's say, from? either our tradition or other traditions, uh, have you run across specific prayers that would be, that could be said, that have been said at the moment when one ingests the, uh, the cocktail? So I usually say to the family in advance of the May day, you know, or talk to the patient, how do you want this day to look? Like they should sort of choreograph it a little bit. I've had people who want each family member or each one of their children to read maybe a little poem or a prayer. I've had other people who say, nah, I don't want any of that garbage to show up and I'm going to drink the medicine, right? Some people want music in the background. Some people want a slideshow. I did have one lady, she was really cute. And she asked to have, um, she had each of her children read a little poem to her. And then when she drank her medicine and started to fall asleep, she wanted somewhere over the rainbow played in the background. And after she died, she wanted that switch to when the saints come marching in. So sometimes you get a little more choreography, but again, a lot of the people I work with are just, they're just so practical and so resolute that sometimes they don't want that. So there's not one particular thing that I could say. Now, one of the more interesting cases we actually had was a lady with Hindu origin 
And her family really had a lot of requirements about what would happen with her, you know, which direction her head was going to face. And they had to put her on the floor and face her head to the north. And we weren't allowed to talk. And there was very loud music in the background that I actually found a little bit disconcerting. But, you know, we try to bend to whatever the um, traditions and desires are of the patient and the family because it's their day, you know? Do you, do you see medical aid in dying growing and, and becoming more legal? Um, so I think it probably will. I mean, right now it's a very, very tiny percentage of people. Now, other countries have aid in dying and they have much more liberal laws. Canada, for example, has a much more liberal law. And I think I recently heard that five to 10% of deaths are with aid in dying, which I think is astoundingly large. Right. I think in the US, it's less than 1%. Um, one of the big things here is that A, people don't know it's available. Um, one of the things that I do is a lot of education. And in fact, I'm often calling people's consulting doctor to talk to them about aid in dying. And I'd say more often than not, their doctors have never heard of it. I get responses like, what do you mean that's legal in New Jersey, even though they're doctors in New Jersey? So wow. I'm constantly explaining it. And I can't tell you how many families tell me it, it was so hard to find me. Um, mostly they get my name from hospice, but clearly it's not the kind of thing I could put up a billboard, right? Or have a Facebook ad. So it's a little under the radar, even though it's totally legal. And um, it is, people have to work hard to find me. Let me ask you one question before we run out of time. This is legal in the state of New Jersey. Yes. Now, suppose somebody across the river from my old neighborhood in Mount Airy in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania is in a situation that conforms to the law. But they live in Pennsylvania. They call you up. They get a hold of you. They find out about you. Do they then have to have a minimum residency requirement in the state of New Jersey for you to treat them? Or can you treat so them by living in a state where it's not legal? Excuse me. So what you're talking about is medical tourism. And I haven't had a lot of that, but I have had some patients. What they need to do is they do need to move to New Jersey. They need to legally establish residency. There's no period of time that they need to be here. But what they need to do to establish residency is either have a New Jersey driver's license, um, a state income tax return, or a voter registration card. They also have to have an address. So that could be a friend or a relative that permits them to use the address. Or I have had a few people who have come here and rented apartments or condos or some kind of short-term rental. Um, they must take the medication in New Jersey. They cannot come here, get the medicine, and go back to Pennsylvania. Because if they do, anyone that helps them could be charged with homicide. Now, ah, in my case, interesting. Mm, in my case, because I attend every death, I know that's not going to happen. But you know, if there were a doctor that were willing to just write a prescription and then just sort of hand it over, you don't really know what would happen, and they could get into big trouble for that. Also, and, the reporting would be a little tricky. And the surrounding states, I'm, we're we're in New Jersey, so yep. Delaware, Pennsylvania. New York, Connecticut, this law is yeah. still not on the books. Is that correct? Right. On the East Coast right now, you've got Maine, Vermont, and Washington, D.C., in addition to New Jersey. Right. New York and Pennsylvania are trying really hard to get a law passed. I believe Delaware is too. I think Pennsylvanians are really far away away from it, long time from getting it. Um, 
But, you know, they're, they're working hard in a lot of these legislators, legislations to try to get the law passed. Yeah. In conclusion, first of all, again, thank you very much. This is a, this is a tough, it's tough and, and it hits people really in so many different ways on a very profound level. What's one piece of concluding advice that you would give to a family who perhaps has entered this six month tunnel and is overwhelmed and, you know, have heard about this? What's that best piece of advice you can give them? I think the best advice is to call me early. You know, there's there's no reason to not call and get the information. And the way that I work my practice, I'll do a consultation and take a first request if I think the patient is eligible and then confirm that later with medical records. There are people who will call and make a first request, which sets the timer, starts the clock, and then no, go no further. And that's right. fine. They're not obligated in any way to go any further. But when people wait too long to start the process, it can be really tragic because they can miss their window, the window of opportunity. And, so, to, and if somebody wanted to contact you, they just Google you? Um, well, it is a little hard. You have to know how to find me. So either my name or the name of my practice is Compassionate Endings NJ for New Jersey. That'll bring it up. But other than that, it's a little bit hard to find. So, so Compassionate yeah. Endings, endings nj nj yeah and we we wrote our website to be informational not just for our own practice but to explain a lot about how you how, what the eligibility is what the process is answer a lot of questions that people have for example the the death certificate doesn't say anything about aid and dying the only thing it records is the terminal illness and it's also written into the law that no life insurance can be affected by that uh, you cannot be denied your life insurance. And I also want to just say that no insurance will pay for this, nor will, be, they, nor will they pay for the medication. It's also written into the law that it's outside of insurance. So oh, so it's private pay. Private, private. pay. Yep. Well, that's that's yep. mm-hmm. very good informa- yep. and necessary information yep. to let people know. Mm-hmm. Dr. Robin Plumer, thank you very, very much um, for sharing this. It's tough stuff, but important stuff. Yeah. And thank I you for the opportunity. It. Yeah, thanks so much. You just take care, take care of yourself, stay safe and stay healthy. (laughs) And to you as well, thanks. Thank you. And to all of (laughs) you, uh, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's edition of Seekers of Meaning, the podcast arm of Jewish Sacred Aging. Again, if you'd like to comment or suggest ideas or suggestions for other issues, rabbi address at jewishsacredaging.com. We appreciate your support very, very much. And if you'd like to help continue these podcasts and the programs of Jewish Sacred Aging, please go to the website, jewishsacredaging.com. Click on the donate button and you can make a tax-free donation uh, to help support us. So um, all of you again, thank you. And a big shout out as usual to our producers, Steve Lubetkin and Lubetkin Media Companies in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, uh, who hosts us and produces the show. Again, thank you for joining us. Until the next time and the next edition of Seekers of Meetings, stay safe, everybody. Stay healthy. Be kind to one another. Shalom.